the San Francisco Experience podcast. Brought to you by Jim Hurley. Independent commentary from a Silicon Valley, California perspective for a global audience, featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 21, Episode 14. Captain of Her Soul, The Life of Marion Davies, talking with author Lara Gabrielle. From her humble origins in Brooklyn to her film career and life with press baron William Randolph Hearst, the public life story of Marion Davies unfolds like a fairy tale. But since her public image was largely wrapped in PR fog created by gossip columnists, fan magazines, and biopics, the real person behind the glossy image was obscured from public view. So who was Marion Davies? Author Lara Gabrielle, through her meticulous research, reveals a woman who overcame disability and social stigma to rise to the top in Hollywood. Lara joins us from her office in Oakland. Hi, Lara, and welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. This is lovely. My pleasure. Lara, what motivated you to write this biography? And I might add, writing a biography of a person who has a public image at odds to a certain extent with the real person must be a challenge. It, it is, all of that. Starting with what motivated me to write this book, Marion Davies has always sort of been at the back of my mind. I am a longtime classic film lover uh, from the time I was I was a kid, a really little kid. And I got a book called The Times We Had when I was about 13 as a birthday present. And The Times We Had has been marketed as Marion Davies' memoir for many decades since it came out in 1975. It's not really, we can maybe get, get into that later. It's sort of a cut and paste of her autobiographical tapes. But I read it and I thought, this is a woman who has had a really interesting life. Even as a young teenager, I recognized that. So she was always sort of with me. I started a classic film blog in 2011, realized mm -hmm. how much I loved the research and the writing process. I started thinking about maybe doing something bigger. I had had a few interviews with people who had written biographies. I thought the process sounded fantastic and something that I would really like to tackle. But I had to think about who would be very interesting and who didn't have a lot written about them. There's been one biography of Marion Davies. Well, there was since mine has come out now. But in 1972, there was one that was written by Fred Lawrence Giles. But that was it. It was that and the times we had that was been written about Marion Davies. And the 72 one was a little bit of a quick publish. It didn't have any end notes or any really serious scholarship attached to it. So she was the first name that came to mind. She had been there and just sort of popped to the front of my mind. And I couldn't shake her. I thought I, I couldn't think of anybody who would be more interesting than Marion Davies. So I sort of took it as a sign. I went down to LA and found her papers, her letters, her correspondence, mm -hmm. you know, that, that kind of thing uh, at an archive in LA. And things started coming together pretty quickly. I found family members who were still alive who knew her. I found friends who were still alive. The man who helped her do her autobiographical tapes was still alive. So I found all these people and started talking to them. And the story started to come into to view. And the more I learned about her, 
the more it became clear that this was a woman who needed to have her story given back to her. Mm -hmm. She has been so misunderstood and maligned by what people think she was or who she was attached to. She's always been considered sort of an appendage to Hearst when in reality she was a fiercely independent woman, made all her own decisions, never let Hearst or anybody else boss her around. She needs to be understood for the woman that she was rather than who she was attached to. Mm-hmm. It took me nine years to write this book. My goodness. I really wanted to make sure that her story was being told fully and accurately. Well, speaking of scholarship, kudos to you to have University of California Press as the publisher. Thank you. They've been wonderful. It stands out because you can imagine, I I would imagine your treatment and your biography of her, I guess very few other biographies would have been published by such a prestigious publisher. Well, they were always my first choice from the beginning when I was thinking about who might be a good uh, publishing house to take Marion's story because she had such a connection to the University of California. She founded a children's clinic Mm -hmm. in 1926 that was that became very big it was a a free healthcare clinic for low-income children in west la and it became really big during the depression as you might imagine and then in the 50s the late 50s she gave it to ucla to operate so she has always had this connection with the university of california and i wanted i didn't want just any any publisher. Ideally, it would be someone who somehow was somehow connected to Marion. So they were my first choice because of this connection. And of course, Hearst had this connection to the University of California as well. It seemed right. And the fact that it worked out is just the most ideal thing imaginable. Well, let's launch into the book. Here you have Marion Davies, who by the late teens, was already, uh, was an actress. She met William Randolph Hearst. Let's launch into the book. Tell us the story, because it's a fascinating story. She's a a very strong person, as you said. And in your book, you sort of, you, you set the stage the way it should have been set a long time ago, and you tell the story based on, based on her papers and firsthand accounts of people that knew her. So let's start with the book. Let me give maybe a little background on Marion Davies for people who maybe don't know who she is. Marion Davies was a, she's known as a silent film actress. Mm -hmm. And in her career went into sound as well, which we will talk about. But she's probably most well known today for being the life partner, we can say, of William Randolph Hearst, who was legally married to somebody else, although they were separated. And she and and Hearst lived together. They were soulmates for 30 plus years. And she's been sort of maligned by people who have seen and who know Citizen Kane and who think that Susan Alexander is Marion Davies when really she's not. Mm -hmm. It's a a mix of different people and she's much more like Gonowalska. but, But this idea that she is Susan Alexander has continued into the present day. And so now people say, oh, the the woman in Citizen Kane. Well, no. So that's what people think she was. What I have found in my research and my talking to many, many people who knew her is that she was an amazingly talented, intelligent, savvy woman. 
and generous to generous to the point where she didn't even think of herself. Mm-hmm. That generosity sometimes got in the way of her 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 own well being, and a lot of her friends felt that she was generous in the way that she was because of some fault that she felt in herself. Mm. Her social position. This this was the nineteen the 1920s, 1930s, mm-hmm. when living with somebody when you were not married was considered a scandal. Right. And especially living with somebody who was not married, who was legally married to, while well, you're not married, who was legally married to somebody else is even an even bigger scandal. She was hyper aware of this position that she was in socially. So that generosity of spirit may have been some way of, of compensating for the way that she knew that people per- perceived her. Anyway, there, there's a lot to talk about with the book. And Marion herself, she had she struggled with alcoholism as well, mm-hmm. partly because of the social position she was in, partly environmental and partly she she had some anxieties and so she was a very complex woman mm-hmm. let's come back to her transition from silent films to talkies there were yes. so many stars of hollywood who could not make that transition it turned out that their voices whether it was their accent or intonation whatever just didn't resonate once talkies came in and in yeah. Marion's case, it was even, she had a she actually had a disability in a sense of having yeah. a stutter. And mm-hmm. she was able to overcome that though and make the transition to talkies. Tell me about that because I think the fact that she was the, the fact that she was able to conquer the stutter speaks to a discipline and a strength of character and a a, a drive to succeed that you might not associate with her. I mean, just like for instance, Biden has a stutter. And throughout his life, he that's been something that he's always had to conquer. King George VI in England, we remember the film, The King's Speech, he had a stammer and a stutter. So let's talk about that transition from silent films, conquering her stutter, and then continuing to be a success when talkies came in. Yeah, she had a pretty severe stutter that had been with her from the time she was a toddler, she never lost it. That's important to note. Uh, you know, some some people say that you that you lose it, and some people do. Some people do lose their stutters, but Marion never did, mm-hmm. uh, and she stuttered all the way through her life. The fact that she was able to make the transition from silent movies to sound movies when so many people didn't, when the jazz singer came in. The industry changed to accommodate sound on film. A lot of people feared for their for their careers, and a lot of people were right to fear for their careers because very few big stars made that transition mm-hmm. successfully. Marion was one. Mm-hmm. Uh, Norma Shearer, Greta Garbo, Joan Crawford. Those stars were able to make the transition. But if you look at the number of silent stars that existed in the 1920s and how many continued on to the 1930s. It's very small. Mm -hmm. And for Marion to be among them with the disability that she had Mm -hmm. is is really remarkable. Mm -hmm. And it does. You're right. It it speaks to her work ethic. I have her schedule from the early 1930s Uh and she she would go to the studio in the morning, work all day, come home, eat a hurried dinner and at around six o'clock she would spend the rest of the night 
working on her lines mm. with a speech coach. She had a speech coach who would come and help her. It was not a speech therapist. Speech therapy was pretty, pretty rare at, at this point uh, in the early 1930s. But it was like a drama coach who would help her articulate. Mm-hmm. Um, use her mouth muscles in a way that would inhibit her stuttering. And and she did this. She practiced all through the night, every day. Amazing. Um, Amazing. Yeah. Now, you spoke about her generosity at the outset. Mm-hmm. And, yes. of course, she was very close to her family. She had a number of sisters. <laughs> she had success, financial success in her career early on. She yeah. bought them a beautiful home in New York and set them up in that. And when she moved out to California, she bought them a beautiful home in California, brought them out to California. And even in death, she buried them all in a beautiful family mausoleum. Very generous to her parents, to her sisters, to her sibling, to her nieces, nephews. Talk to me about that generosity, uh, that the fact that she was as generous as she was to her family. And of course, she was very supportive of uh, charities, the Jewish Home for the Aged that she supported for many decades. Talk to me about her, her devotion to family charity and to charity at large. She had a, a very, a very generous spirit just in general. She was what we might call today an empath. She was, she, she really felt the difficulties that people were having deeply, physically. She mm. felt them and she wanted to help. She felt she had to help. So when she came out to LA and she saw that there was this need in the, in the community for a clinic for children who didn't have the money to go to a, a normal hospital. She took the bull by the horns and created one and supported it through the, through the depression. And then into the 1940s where uh, it's interesting sort of to sort of trace the, trace the clinic. You can, you can trace the the history of, of California through the Marion Davies children's clinic uh-huh. in the thirties. It expanded, just exploded the, the number of, children who took advantage of the clinic services just jumped sky high in the 1930s, which makes sense. And then in the 1940s, she converted it to a war, a a war hospital. So she moved the clinic, the clinic services elsewhere. And the big building, the clinic building became a a hospital for wounded service members. Uh And she also expanded it to qualification, the eligibility of the children to also include children of active service members because the dispensary in Long Beach was too far away. Anyway, so she she had this children's clinic that she created out of necessity because she wanted to help these kids. There was no other reasoning behind it, just to help. She would have these she would do these random acts of kindness. Like one of my favorite favorite stories came from Mary Carlisle, who I talked to before a couple of years before she died and this couple of years before she died was when she was 100 years old oh wow <laughs> um, who was with Marion in Europe and Mary said that she admired a nightgown in a window in Italy but there was not one in her size and the shop was closing right by the morning she found she got a call that there was a package left for her at the front desk of the hotel and Marion had paid the shop owner to make her one in her size by wow. morning 
it, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. you know, just these random acts of kindness that were so normal for her. Very, very touching. You know, yes. early on, you, you mentioned that, of course, she was life partner with William Randolph Hearst for 35 years. They lived, of course, in San Simeon, close to San Luis Obispo. They had the beach house in Santa Monica. They had the ranch up in Shasta called Wintoon. So, and of course, they traveled to Europe frequently. I, I was tickled by the fact that so as not to not to spread scandal, they would travel on separate ships. One was on the Olympic and one was on the Ile de France. Mm-hmm. So they were very careful. Very, very careful. Yeah. But there's there's one anecdote that you share in the book where they have decided to get married. And they have they found a, a priest who uh, who I guess was going to overlook the fact that that William Randolph Hearst was about to be divorced or whatever. In any case, they went down to his ranch in Mexico. I think it was Campeche or something, and uh, they were going to be married. And Millicent, the actual wife of W. R. insisted on as part of the divorce settlement, insisted on Rand, uh, W. R. giving up cosmopolitan uh, one of the publications and uh, hearst wouldn't do it and so as a result the marriage didn't take place talk to me about that because even though divorce was was rare in those days it did happen and certainly did happen in hollywood did she take that as a rejection did she take it as well she stayed with him so obviously she accepted it but was that a major blow to her and to their relationship? Yes. It was something that Marion never mm. got over. Mm-hmm. I think that that was the beginning of, I don't want to say the beginning of the end because she she lived for a long while after that, but but she was sad for the rest of her life because of that, that incident. It made her alcoholism worse. Mm. Uh, she went on a big i don't know how much you remember from that section of the book but she after after the annulled the annulled wedding they went back to Wintoon and marion disappeared she disappeared for mm-hmm. a week mm-hmm. and nobody knew where she was right. and the details of that are very scant we don't know how she survived we don't know where she was but when she was found she had been on a very very severe um alcoholic binge it, it was something that she never recovered from mm-hmm. um, her alcoholism from then on was really bad but she stayed with him through the end he passed in yeah. 1951 of course he was quite a bit older than she and then shortly before i guess of course before his death talk to me about the will because mm-hmm. he i guess by passing on controlling interest in the hearst corporation to her that sort of spoke to his devotion to her. Could you tell me about that? Because th- that seemed to be a, a great redemption, in my eyes anyway, of an acknowledgement of his devotion to her. Could you tell us about that piece? Yes, and I think that it, it's the right thing to go from the marriage, the annulled marriage, to the will. Yes. Because they're connected. He could not give up Cosmopolitan. William Randolph Hearst was somebody who couldn't reconcile his public and private lives. Mm-hmm. And he was, by Cosmopolitan being thrown into the d- divorce agreement, he was forced to to look at that. And he just sort of flipped and was, was not able to, to do that. He felt guilty about that mm-hmm. for a long time. And the will 
giving Marion it was a it was a huge thing that he gave Marion yes. the voting rights to the Hearst Corporation stock, mm-hmm. all of his shares of the mm-hmm. of the Hearst Corporation. That was a direct connection to the fact that he was not able to ever marry her the way that he wanted to. And it was also a thank you for something that Marion did in 1938, which was bailing out the Hearst Corporation when the Hearst Corporation was going under. Mm -hmm. People have trouble thinking about the Hearst Corporation as being in the red, but it was for for a while in the 30s and and it was about to go under. And Marion in two days got together a million dollars to give to the Hearst Corporation to bail it out. And that donation, there were two others like it. There was one from Abby Rockefeller and one from Sissy Patterson. Those three donations are credited with the fact that the Hearst Corporation exists today, essentially. Hmm. So she was partly responsible for that. And he was very grateful to her for her part in keeping the organization afloat. And so the will was a reflection of those two events fact that he was never able to marry her and the fact that she had done so much for him. Talk to me about William Randolph Hearst. We have we have many listeners who are 30s and 40s who maybe have read about William Randolph Hearst. Give us a sense of the scale of his media fortune and the power that he wielded in terms of shaping American thought politically, news-wise, culture-wise. Give us a sense of the the media power that Hearst exercised. Hearst could be considered perhaps the most influential person of the early 20th century. He had a he had a media empire that was so powerful it it could start wars. Mm-hmm. In 1898, the Spanish-American War started yes. in part because of the influence of the Hearst Papers in rallying the public opinion toward wanting war with Spain. Remember the Maine. The... Remember the Maine, exactly. <laughs> Which yes. is sunk in Havana Harbor. Yes. He knew presidents. He knew anyone of influence, knew and listened to Hearst. Mm-hmm. He essentially had the world on, you could say he had the world on a string, right? He had the world on sort of his, in his, in his hand. And he could craft public opinion based on the way he wanted it to be crafted. So he was an extremely powerful, it's hard to comprehend yes. how powerful mm-hmm. he was. A lot of people think of him as a cruel, tyrannical businessman, Mm -hmm. which in some ways is true. He could be like that in his work life. A friend of mine likes to say he lived in rarefied air. He lived on a different plane of existence than most people. And it made him blind to other people's perspectives. It wasn't that he didn't appreciate other people's perspectives because he did. He couldn't understand them. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that made it difficult for him to take other people's ideas, you know, and incorporate them into his either papers or his production, you know, his film productions with Marion, you know, he had a, he had Cosmopolitan Productions, which I think is important to, to mention. Yes. Cosmopolitan Productions was the, uh, the production company where Marion Davies worked for her entire career. And it was owned and produced by, 
by Hearst. He put her in these roles at the beginning that were dramatic and uh, historical. And he put her in these big costumes that, you know, and with these huge sets in in the back. Uh, And people would look at them and say, what are you doing? She, Marion would be, you know, clowning. (laughs) She was, she was a comedian. uh, Uh Naturally. She would, you know, at parties, she would just do impressions of stars and make mischief and stuff. So they, people would say, what are you doing with her in these costumes? She needs to do comedy. And he would sometimes say, oh yeah, wouldn't that be nice? And then he would just keep doing what he, (laughs) what he did. So he, he couldn't really accept what other people said because he always felt like his his vision was was better. Or, or but Marion made the step herself to mm-hmm. become a, a comedian. Mm-hmm. So anyway, all of that to say, he lived in rarefied air. Talk to me about their connection with the Kennedys. You include a wonderful picture in the book of uh, Marion there at the inauguration of JFK on January 20th, 1961. She's about two rows behind the president uh, to his left. Tell me about that connection. How did she get there? What was her relationship with the Kennedys? Marion's relationship with the Kennedys was based on her relationship with Joseph P. Kennedy, who she knew from Hollywood. So Joseph P. Kennedy, what some people may not know is that Joseph P. Kennedy had an extensive career in Hollywood mm-hmm. uh, and he had an affair with Gloria Swanson and, and all that. So he, he and Marion knew each other from that world. So Kennedy, when he got into the, uh, the Roosevelt administration, he worked with WR a lot, you know, with, with Hearst a lot. And so they maintained uh, a, a contact and, he, Kennedy, really liked, he thought that she was just an exceptional person. It, there were very few people who didn't like Marion. Marion Marian was pretty universally loved in Hollywood. But Kennedy really had a, had a love for her. And he is such a, a controversial character in, in so many ways, mm-hmm. Joseph P. Kennedy. His, his influence with, with Marion is also the source of some controversy because some people think that he was using her generosity. Other people think he was a sincere friend. It's, it's hard to know. Hard to know. Um, she was, was very generous with the Kennedy family. Mm-hmm. The, l- later on in the 1950s, she was invited to all the Kennedy children's weddings and she came to many of them. And when JFK and Jackie got married, she offered her home for them to use on their honeymoon. So JFK and Jackie spent time at at Marion's home. And then when the 1960 Democratic National Convention came around, she offered her home for Joe, Joseph P. Kennedy, to use as a headquarters Uh during the convention. Uh, it It was not safe enough for Jack and Jackie to use. They stayed somewhere else, but Joseph P. Kennedy used her home when the DNC was happening in Los Angeles. And as a thank you for that, as a thank you for letting him use her home, she was invited to the inauguration. So you can see Marion, and there's a photo in my book, you can see Marion uh, in photos of the inauguration. She's yes. very close. She's in the, she's in the, uh, 
the box. Oh, know? yeah. She's, she's like right behind two yeah. rows behind uh, behind the president. You mentioned homes, of course. I guess you're referring to the home in, uh, in Beverly Hills. Yes. Um, let's come back to San Simeon, because you and I are both residents of California. We know San Simeon. And of course, when you go to San Simeon, you, number one, you get a sense of, you get a sense of who William Randolph Hearst was and his, mm-hmm. his sense of grandiosity. I don't mean that in a, in a pejorative way, but uh, there's, it's certainly a very grandiose place. But you also, have a, you also get a very good sense of Marion. Marion Davies, because she spent a good part of her life there. Talk to me about Sam Simeon and how the she spent her time there and, of course, entertained quite a bit and brought Hollywood luminaries up from Los Angeles and Hollywood to uh, to spend weekends there at uh, San Simeon. San Simeon, well, then people called it either San Simeon or the ranch. Hearst Castle is a later iteration of the name of this place. It was completed in 1926. Marion moved from New York to California in late 1924. So a little over a year after she moved to California that San Simeon was ready for occupancy, we could say. It was never finished. We can never say that it was finished because it just kept going and going and going. In early 1926, Marion had a group of friends come up to San Simeon for the first time. And we actually have this on on tape. Uh-huh. Eleanor Boardman and John Gilbert and and others came to just play at San Simeon. And it's important to note that it wasn't a typical vacation. People would come up there not to just lounge around and do whatever they wanted. There was a schedule. You had to be down for breakfast. You had to be there for lunch. You had to be there for dinner. Mm-hmm. There were activities planned throughout the day. And you were expected to do them. If you were caught breaking the rules, you can put it that way. If you're caught breaking the rules, you would be sent home. <laughs> so, it, it, yeah, it was it was a residence. Mm-hmm. You know, it was it's like being at somebody's house. Of course, of course. Yeah, and it, it and it is it is being at somebody's house. Um, but people, you know, sort of have this fantastic idea about oh, being being up there, and wouldn't it have been fun? And I mean, yes, it was fun. Fun. Mm-hmm. Now, Lara, when you, uh, with 10 years of researching Marion, were there any surprises that, that caught you off guard as you did this research? One thing that I'm not sure if I would say caught me off guard, Marion's life was so literary. Mm-hmm. It, it has a natural arc that was very easy to follow. And I don't think there are not very many people like that. You know, people have ups and downs and parts of their life where there are gaps and uh, that kind of thing. That doesn't that didn't really happen with with Marion. There really is this. She had an arc of a life. It, It was wonderful for me to follow that, to follow that arc and see where it took me, you know, to, to this natural conclusion, which was the end of her life. Mm -hmm. I was, I was expecting to experience people who didn't want to talk to me for whatever reason, who wouldn't answer my requests. I didn't have one single experience like that. Uh Every person who knew Marion, who I approached was eager to talk. Oh, that's yes. A- and it says a lot about her mm-hmm. uh, and the effect that she had on people. She, she didn't put anybody 
She didn't put anybody out. She lived her life in such a way that people wanted to talk about her. Mm-hmm. Well, Laura, yeah. in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, what are your closing thoughts about the remarkable life of Marion Davies? What I want to impress upon people is that Marion Davies was her own woman. The title of my book is Captain of Her Soul, and there's a reason for that. Uh, she was the captain of her soul. And she said that about herself. That's where the title comes from. In her autobiographical tapes, which which I have, she says, when referring to Hearst and Hearst's sort of control over her career, she said, he always wanted me to be what he wanted me to be because he really did adore me. But I'm the captain of my soul. And therefore, what I want to do, I want to do myself, regardless of what other people think that I should do. It comes from a poem. It comes from the poem Invictus uh, by William Ernest Henley. Mm -hmm. And if you read that poem, it really encapsulates what her life was like. She had a lot of challenges Mm -hmm. and a lot of moments of adversity. And she always came back from them. She fought them and emerged triumphant. So for people who maybe think of her in the Citizen Kane terms, mm-hmm. that's not who Marion Davies was at all. And if you if you read the book, um, I think you'll get that. Well, where can our listeners buy a copy of the book? Anywhere you get your books, um, <laughs> it's it's on it's on Amazon naturally. I always but I always like to tell people to buy from your local bookstore. Mm-hmm. So if you're in the San Francisco area, it's at Green Apple Books. I think it's also at Books Inc. Book Passage. I think it's at Mrs. Dalloway's in Berkeley. Um, I had a lovely event there. Barnes and Noble, mm-hmm. anywhere you would like to get a book, you can, you can get a book, you can get a copy of Caption of Her Soul there. Wonderful. And tell us, how can our listeners follow you? I am on all social media platforms as Backlots Film. So Backlots, plural, mm-hmm. uh, as in like movie Backlots, film, F-I-L-M. So backlots. your Twitter handle is at Backlots Film? Yes, at Backlots Film and also Instagram, I tried TikTok for a while and I couldn't figure it out. So I'm not there, <laughs> okay. um, but I'm, but I'm on um, Facebook, Captain of Her Soul, The Life of Marion Davies. The book has a page uh-huh. uh, and a group and then Backlots Film on Instagram and Twitter. Fantastic. And tell me, what is your next project? I am working on something. I, I haven't quite gotten to the point where I can talk about anything specific because I need to figure out if it's possible. But I have an idea. I have an idea of something that I want to do. I guess stay tuned um, for what, (laughs) or if this is even possible. But more immediately than that, I am working with a Hearst, there's a Hearst scholar named Taylor Kaufman, who works uh, out of Southern California. And he is like the world expert on on William Randolph Hearst. Mm-hmm. And he and I are working together on a book about Hearst and Marion in California. And mm-hmm. it's going to be a co-author, a co-authored project. It probably won't be out for a while, but we're, we're working on it. Well, we'd love to have you come back and talk about that or any other or that uh, that other project. Hopefully it'll be before 10 years, but uh, we'd love to have you come back. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and yeah. you, you have to come back before that, okay? Yes, I would love it. Again, Laura, thank you so much for joining us today and look forward to the next time. Yes, thank you very much. This is wonderful. And for our listeners, today's episode is number 419. Listen to us on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Amazon Music, 18 platforms in total, and join our listener base that spans 65 countries. 
This has been the San Francisco Experience Podcast with your host, Jim Herlihy, coming to you from San Francisco. Thank you.